0: Good morning and welcome to the Informed Electorate Podcast. This is episode two, so I feel like we're making waves out there. I think I saw two views on episode one. Pretty exciting stuff. But on a real note, all the videos have been getting extremely positive uh, feedback, tons of comments, which I was surprised, like I don't comment a lot on YouTube videos that I watch, so I'm, I'm surprised that people comment on videos that I make, but they're extremely encouraging, so thanks for that. Uh, just a note for new listeners, because anyone who listens to this outside of the two that listen to episode one, just a quick explanation about what you're about to hear. Um, the Informed Electorate Podcast is meant to provide you actual political news, public policy reviews, and essentially a snapshot of the week's actual news, meaning not what people are saying and doing, but what's actually happening on the House and Senate floors of states and in our capital at Washington, D.C. What is the point of this podcast? Well, an informed electorate is the only way Our Republican system of government can function. What do I mean by that? This is all unscripted so forgive me for any inaccuracies or small slight variations in words etc but we live in a representative democracy which means that we elect representatives to take our voice to our capital either state capital or our nation's capital. Those people that we elect are public servants. Their job is to represent us, and to share our opinions in the state capitol, make decisions based on what we think is best. They cannot do that job without having a constituent body with an opinion. Unfortunately today, most people don't know enough about public policy to even form an opinion at all about public policy. They don't have the means or time to understand and study what really matters. You may believe one thing, but it's unconstitutional, it has some ramifications you don't understand, etc. Just yesterday, and we'll be covering a bit of it today in our deep dive as well, there were several state senators in a state that were supporting a bill that was, or supporting a law, the bill was to repeal the law, That was nonpartisan. this is not my opinion, objectively unconstitutional. Objective in the most objective sense. Like, Senate, Democrats, and Republicans both were like, wow, we need to get this law off the books. But people who don't understand what constitutional is or constitutional law didn't understand why the law was a violation of our First Amendment freedoms to speech. And we'll get into that later. Also, not everyone has an economic background, but economics is one of the key facets of our governing body. We have a state and national body of legislators that decide on a budget spending plan that affects many of our lives, what our roads look like, how our schools operate. Now, that may not be jurisdictionally correct. It may not be the size of a budget that would be expected by our founding fathers back in the day, but regardless, that is what we have to work with now. We have legislators that decide on a budget. But not everyone's an economist, understandably. Economics is extremely difficult. I studied economic public policy specifically, which meant I was taking just as many math courses as I was uh, public policy writing and legal courses. And public policy is confusing enough, but when it's public policy being written about numbers and budgets and <coughs> inflation and all of that, makes it even more difficult. But, it's got to be done. And when legislators and constituent bodies don't understand the nuances of these topics, things get messed up. The second story we're talking about today is about a state that decided, the legislators decided among themselves, that they would no longer take inflation into account. Inflation. They were just going to say, inflation doesn't exist. And we're we saying this so we can balance the budget by eliminating future increases in spending that would be accounting for inflation. Yes, that's somehow possible. I feel like we're in the dark ages literal dark ages, the fact that an entire group of elected officials representing a state one 50th of our nation, a little bit less because obviously we have territories and stuff as well, and they chose to disbelieve in inflation. Just think about that. Now that's the purpose of this podcast, is to explore nuances of public policy and economics and political philosophy in a way that you can understand, in a way that brings you back to the podcast twice a week. We're doing these on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 a.m. So you can listen to them on the way to work, at the gym, what have you. It's going to be 30 minutes of just quick overviews of what really matters. I work a regular job. I work a freaking cool job. Not going to talk a lot about myself, but I love my job. So, I'm not going to leave that and provide this extremely long analysis every day for you. But I hope that I can provide you a jumping off point to at least begin your journey of understanding this stuff, being a more informed electorate. I promised myself that after the last election, where I spent a lot of time on social media telling my friends and family what I thought about politics. And, you know, I just felt like I wasn't doing enough. I have extensive education and experience in politics, and that's not to justify the information in this podcast. It's just to say, I felt as if I had been given so much, it was my duty to at least give a little bit of knowledge back. And I didn't, I, you know, just casually posted every once in a while Uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, to my friends and family, I would talk to, uh, I would always field phone calls, but after that election, I decided, you know, I need to give back more, and I need to widen my reach, I need to provide people with information, and it doesn't mean that this is going to pop off, or that I plan on making any money from this. I'm pretty sure I demonetized all my videos. I hope they're all demonetized right now. I'm not attempting to make money from this. But I do, and I say this at every video, and it's almost like comically nerdy and annoying, but I stand by it. I'm attempting to add just another grain of information to the vast ocean of knowledge that is the internet. I used the internet so much when I studied law and economics and public policy and analyzed public policy and worked in politics. I relied on the information provided on the internet, but I truly see this post-2016 era, 2016 to 2020, as a literal dark ages of knowledge. I actually went for about a year and I read a book a week, I went a year and decided I am not going to read anything that was published after 2016. It's just nonsense. Like, what is in there almost lacks objective truth. And I'm never going to share my party affiliation or my thoughts on politics. All of this is going to remain nonpartisan, because that's the only way to analyze public policy. Either something is good... (coughs) Either something's good for the state or is not good for the state, or is good for the country, or is not good for the country. There's no, oh, it's good if you're on the right, it's good if you're on the left. That's not how public policy works. That's also not how economics works. And believe it or not, philosophy is like the only area I see today that remains in forms of objective truth. It's academics debating with each other about what is right and what is wrong. But after 2016, we saw such radical splits and worldviews that now there are multiple objective truths. I kid you not. I'm writing a book about it called Principalism. I'm actually still working on the title, but it's about the concept of principalism remaining a principal thinker, you know, in an era where there is no objective truth. So yeah, that's kind of what we're dealing with. That's the podcast. I'm probably going to give lengthy introductions like this, explaining the story for the first few episodes until we get like a typical 20 to 30 viewers, which should be easy. Now, why am I using YouTube as an outlet? You know, I hope to push this work in other directions as well, like on uh, podcast platforms, Spotify, iTunes, and all that stuff. But... I have a past with YouTube, I used to make YouTube videos when I was younger, and I really loved it, and I built quite a big audience, me and two of my best friends, I had an account, it was, you know, stupid, we were probably 13 years old, Um, and we made videos consistently for years, and we built up thousands of people that watched us, we would live stream and talk to fans and all, and of course, you know, you get into high school or whatever, and you're like, that's not cool, you shut down your channel, you're like, oh, you know, we only had, like, 5,000 subscribers, like, that's so lame, compared to the weird glares and questions we get from friends in high school, but, I mean, you're just so hyper-focused on what other people think about you at that age, anyways, it was bound to be unsuccessful, I don't know how kids these days do it, but, honestly, now, I'm married, and, you know, a middle-aged man who loves his life, so it's just adding just a little bit of adventure to it by posting videos and podcasts like this that explain public policy. What do you know? Fun hobbies for someone who studies economics, public policy, and law. I know. But anyways, let's dive into it. This is what you're going to expect to see on a Tuesday and Thursday. We're going to dive into three stories a day about public policy, economics, or political philosophy, the last story is going to be a deep dive. It will also be covered in a different, more entertaining route in a video that I will post as well, either the day before or day after. And that's because there are so many stories, so many. So my goal when I started this channel was to post a public policy review every day because I already analyzed public policy. So this is me just like sharing a little bit of my daily work with the world. Not taking a lot of time from me. Producing videos is extremely easy. It's something I'm passionate about. But there were so many stories I wanted to cover for you, there's no way I could do it in a video uh, feed. You know, it's like, that's a lot of work, editing videos and just waiting for things to export and import and that's all it has on your computer. So I decided Podcast Format to be like a catch-all for all the news I thought was important for the last few days. Drinking uh, some morning tea here very early all right we're getting started while i was weird my mic randomly muted the good thing is this is not going to be edited me coughing up random silences Because that is what's so time-consuming about editing in the first place. So we're just rolling with it. In Kentucky, we're talking about Kentucky today, there was a new take on guns that was presented. So many have wondered if there's a middle ground between gun right bans, uh, gun buyback programs, and no policy at all. Essentially, that's been the spectrum. Specifically, Republicans have been silent on what uh, to do about the ever more frequent number of mass shootings. And Democrats have proposed many plans that would either vastly restrict gun rights, there are some mandatory buyback programs, repossession laws, things of that nature that have been proposed. I'm trying to use the most nonpartisan language I can in this, but this week we got a glimpse into what could be a middle ground from one of the nation's leading Republicans and or many people think he's a libertarian because of his father's ties. But Rand Paul, now it's normal for congressmen and women to set up study groups, small think tanks, and community briefings to hear out the community experts on issues regarding how to solve the nation's toughest problems. Now I've been in many of these, they're extremely helpful, uh, I, I truly think that every politician if they're not already, state senator, state representative, congressman, senator, all the way up. You cannot be an expert in every field. To be good at your job, you probably shouldn't be an expert in any field. You should have a wide uh, array of knowledge that you bring to the table that helps capture many areas of study. So therefore, you need to have experts around you that know enough about certain policy areas to advise you on how to move forward. This is usually done in panel sessions, where a congressman or senator will have a room, they close off, they invite school teachers to talk about policy, or superintendents to talk about education budgets, um, astrophysicists that talk about NASA's budget, things of this nature. The future from futurist vocational schools from those that work in the vocations represented by these schools now, and that's how you shape a good public policy. There are, of course, people that don't do that, that just rely on white paper experts from think tanks. That's where you get more Ivy League glossed over policy, like some things we'll be talking about today. But in this specific sense, Senator Rand Paul set up a panel that would have Every outspoken person in his community there to talk about gun rights, both on his side, against his side, and he really wanted to hear if anyone had any solutions that were constitutional. Now, we've talked about ghost gun bans, um, making illegal guns illegal again, and Rand Paul really took this stance. He was respectful in the panel and stated that a lot of the laws you're proposing would just make already illegal activity illegal again. Ghost guns are already illegal. You'd just be stating in another statute that they're illegal. Automatic weapons are already illegal. You'd just be stating that they're illegal again. You are attempting to take away or restrict gun ownership, but the people who own guns and commit crimes with those guns are going to buy guns anyways around those policies on the black market because... Most people committing gun crimes are criminals, so therefore, they don't follow the law. So, I think I found a middle ground. This is Rand Paul. This is not me. I'm not saying I agree or disagree. This is just public policy news. He said, I'm of two minds. If it's nonviolent drug crimes, I think we've locked up way too many black people compared to white people, and the incarceration rate is a big problem. He said, however... If it's a violent crime, I'd keep people in prison even longer and increase penalties, particularly involving guns. Noting that what we should do is crack down on criminals that are committing these crimes and not those who don't commit crimes because there's no sense in restricting the rights of lawful gun owners when there are people out there who commit crimes that we should take much more seriously. So he is proposing new gun legislation. That would essentially lock up gun crime offenders, gun law offenders, for good. Like basically throwing away the key. And to harshly, harshly uh, penalize people who are illegally trading firearms, people who are violent felons. So that they don't get out of jail and cause the problems that we're seeing today. Now, this was really interesting quote. I wanted to pull it out of a news article I read today. And he said that he wants to put a lot of money towards fixing this mass shooting and gun problem. He said, you'll usually get a little speech from me that we're short on money and we'll have to take it from somewhere else. But I think Louisville is more important, frankly, than the war in Afghanistan. So I'd be for spending the money here, not sending it overseas. I believe the reason, not I believe, the reason I'm covering this is because... I believe this is going to be a new trend on the right and left. That we need to focus our resources internally to fix the problems at bay. This is something that was ran by Andrew Yang and Tulsi Gabbard and Donald Trump. Both on the right and left, people are saying, let's stop spending our money overseas, let's turn it inside and fix the gun and terrorist problems here in our nation not the gun and terrorist problems in other countries, and that's the take Rand Paul would like to take on this at a state level and eventually national level. (laughs) He did, however, say that he cannot be for gun legislation that restricts lawful gun ownership because he sees how important it is in his own life. Rand Paul was notably at the shooting at the baseball field where a congressman was shot, and he has received numerous death threats, notably so The FBI is almost constantly looking into death threats against Rand Paul. And he said that my wife sleeps with a loaded gun next to her head. She gets so many death threats. I had 200 death threats last week from people who hate me. What should I do? Just say, I'm against gun ownership? The other people have guns and they're all buying them illegally? It doesn't mean that a good person is going to commit a crime because they own a gun. This is where it gets tricky, because this is a pretty unpopular opinion. I think we can all agree on that. That we need to just simply chase criminals. I think people on the left and right are both having trouble swallowing that. The right would rather take no action, and the left would rather chase legal gun ownership. And from looking at this at a nonpartisan view, we can clearly tell that that's not solving the problem. Look at the statistics. Mass shootings increase, the number of suicides, illegal gun ownership continue to increase, hate crimes continue to increase, etc. So we need to find a problem, and this is just the first instance of a middle ground that is likely to be discussed more by the two major parties moving forward, especially approaching the 2020 election. Next on the agenda, a Minnesota bill, House Bill 135, which mandates the inclusion of inflation in all budgetary proposals, is now on the House floor but unlikely to get passed. I try not to cover dying or dead bills, But this bill stems from a problem created some 18 years ago that is just so insightful into government, and just so insightful to the reason for this podcast to exist that I just had to cover it. So in Minnesota back in the early 2000s, there was an independent governor, and that was Minnesota's Governor Jesse Ventura. He vetoed a budget proposal and an emergency one-time spending to clear the state's deficit, but he vetoed the budget plan, which is pretty rare, because it didn't include spending for inflation. That means that when they calculated the numbers of how much the state would need to spend over the course of the next 20 years, they did not include an increase in spending per year based on just the monetary inflation that occurs in our economy. Every year things increasing and cost marginally 1 to 2 percent, sometimes 3 percent. In other countries like Zimbabwe and you know, nations that have collapsing economies, it would be much higher. But in America, stable but present. And when you're talking about 20 years, extremely present. will completely change the way a budget is shaped. Now, legislators in Minnesota's House and Senate decided that they didn't want to take account of inflation simply because they wanted to balance the budget, and they could do so by cutting the increased funding provided each year for inflation. The governor was like, this is ludicrous. This is dark ages stuff. This is literally saying, I do not believe in inflation. Inflation exists whether or not you put it in a budget. So if I pass this budget, you're immediately going to need more funding. The balance, the budget would be, quote, balanced in an academic sense, like one paper would be balanced for one year. But then every year after that, you would either have to cut funding for programs at the rate of inflation or increase taxes at the rate of inflation. And both of those are double negatives. So now you're losing money and cutting resources provided to the community or losing money and taking more money from constituents just to say on paper that you balance the budget, which is not necessary. Many states, and obviously our nation, don't. I'm not saying it's not necessary in my opinion. I'm just saying Minnesota doesn't have to balance the budget here. It's not a necessity. They also didn't have to clear their deficit. But the House and Senate overruled the veto and implemented the spending bill anyways because it balanced the budget. And it just so happened, of course, that many of the authors of that bill wanted to go off and say when they ran for governor and state senate and state rep and even congress and senate that they passed a balanced budget in their state. Now the funding provided for each student now is multiples, 10 times less than it needs to be. I heard rumors that in Minnesota, now that the the spending bill has been in place without inflation for 20 years and has gone uncorrected. That the bill originally allotted like $1,000 per student um, for schools, and now it costs like $7,000 per student to send uh, students to public school. But that funding doesn't exist, so there are just schools without resources. That is a problem. Also, we have teachers in Minnesota that get paid extremely poorly, do not receive I don't believe they receive increases, annual increases uh, to their pay based on inflation. But I did look at, don't quote me on that, but I did look at how much a teacher gets paid after 12 years and with the master's degree. It's like $57,000 a year, which is only marginally improved from their original salary. So just for my brief look at the numbers, I don't think the math would add up that inflation would be calculated in a year-to-year increase in their salary. <laughs> now, It's not just that, right? Labor costs more to have roads fixed. Salaries need to increase for uh, state workers, obviously, so that they are making more money each year just to be able to pay for their expenses. Literally just so they're not taking a pay cut every year. Now we look at the bill that was just proposed in Minnesota to fix this problem. The bill is meant to correct Minnesota State Statute Section 16 A one hundred three. Uh, expenditures, and this is crazy. It's specifically stated in law in Minnesota that expenditure estimates must not include an allowance for inflation. But if the bill's passed, it will simply read expenditures must be estimated for all obligations imposed by law and those projected to occur as a result of inflation and variables outside the control of the legislature and then helps them calculate inflation. Makes sense, right? Because you can't just make inflation go away. Now we get to our deep dive. Connecticut Senate Bill 73. So the deep dive I provide via video produces like tons of really cool constitutional law information which is, like, my passion. So you get to hear that. But essentially, Connecticut... All right, that was my dog. But anyways, Senate Bill 73 is meant to correct an unconstitutional law that's been on the books in Connecticut for quite some time. Now, specifically... The bill in place is called a ridicule law. It's that any person who buys advertisement ridicules or holds up to contempt any person or class of persons on account of their creed, religion, color, denomination, nationality, or race, such as person or class of person shall be guilty of a class B misdemeanor. What this does is creates an unconstitutional standard for judging when someone's wrongdoing is against the law or violates the law. Because the standard is ridiculing somebody. Now, what ridicule means is something different to every person. What ridicules you may be different than what you believe ridicules someone else. And every person has a different opinion about what ridiculing is. But if you ridicule someone in Connecticut, you can face 30 days in prison or a $50 fine or both. Experts of both sides, of the aisle, Republicans and Democrats, have both said this law is unconstitutionally vague. It's overbroad. Some even say it violates your due process rights under the 14th Amendment. The problem is the law is unconstitutional, yet some senators in uh, the great state of Connecticut don't know enough about constitutional law to understand why it's constitutional. In 2020, for instance, it's not unlikely that someone would be, quote, punished for saying the wrong thing or being mean to someone. But it's not criminally punishable. It's socially punishable. It's different when it comes to the law. And even the ACLU spoke out up about this, that it's unrelated to cancel culture. This is nonpartisan. It just violates a sacred uh, freedom protected by the First Amendment, our speech, even if it's offensive. So we get into the specifics in the deep dive. Definitely go check that out. But there's a bill on the Senate floor in Connecticut that would override the ridicule law, eliminate it, and allow for offensive speech in the state. Still socially punishable, just not criminal. However, many newspapers are reporting that they don't believe this will pass because there's not enough support. So that's really what I wanted to speak about today, is making you aware of what is and is not unconstitutional. And you should go check out that Deep Times uh, where I explain that this law is vague, and overbroad, meaning that, uh, really, uh, an average person would not know what conduct would violate the law, and that the law gives police officers too much discretion in controlling who they can arrest and why, both of which make the law unconstitutional. And because it is a state law, of course, that would be unconstitutional through our 14th Amendment due process rights. And, You should check it out and make yourself a more informed elector. Thanks, guys.